Okay, as we wrap up the book of Genesis, we remember that this book has primarily the, the function, the goal of teaching us the origins of mankind, of humanity, of the world, how the world came to be, and then how the world came to be this messed up thing that we see and know and experience today. And that ultimately is the purpose of chapters 1 through 11, this prologue section of Genesis. And then chapters 12 through 50 really zooms in and begins developing this family tree that comes from this one guy that was elected by God, this man named Abram, who would become Abraham. He was the man chosen by God who would have a promised lineage that would deliver ultimately a Messiah, a Savior. And so for the last few weeks, we've been watching that, that family tree develop from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And now we see that Jacob, if we look back in our reading from two weeks ago, we would have seen that Jacob starts wrestling with what he perceives to be God, starts wrestling with this man. And this is the most epic wrestling match of all time. Makes WrestleMania look like, uh, looks like the kids jumping around in your living room where you see the spandex grown men saying things like, can you smell what the rock is cooking? Kind of look rather comical, which I think it is pretty comical. But there's this wrestling match between Jacob and this being who finally, they're wrestling all night. And Jacob finally says, listen, I will not let you go unless you bless me or until you bless me. And many have speculated over what this person, who this person was. Some say it was the pre-incarnate Christ, meaning Jesus before he was born of the virgin. Um, some people have said it was just a physical manifestation of God. Others have argued that it's an angel, which I think is pretty easy to say I agree it was an angel uh, because Hosea chapter 12 and verse 4, the prophet Hosea says it was an angel that Jacob strove with the angel. And, uh, and people get caught up on the phrases of Jacob saying, I wrestled with God or I prevailed against him. Well, messengers oftentimes were called God as they were his representatives, although they were not God. They were ambassadors and messengers for him. Nonetheless, Jacob's wrestling with this angel, says, listen, I'm not gonna stop until you bless me. The angel touches his hip, pops it out of socket. And this man, Jacob, emerges from this encounter crippled, but a new man. In fact, he gets a new name. He's called Israel now. And we see this immediately in the next altar of worship that he erects and builds to worship God. He no longer says, worship to God of my fathers. He says to God, the God of Israel, his new name. And so then this man Israel becomes the nation that we still know and see today in the Near East that started with his 12 sons. These 12 sons of his became the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's important we remember that. And let me just give one more caveat for those of you. I see a lot of new faces. And if you're new here, if you're a visitor, um, just so you know, our church is doing something right now called the Year of the Bible, where we are reading through Scripture we're going Genesis to Revelation in 2022. We have a reading plan where our church is reading throughout the week, and then small groups have the opportunity to discuss what they're reading together throughout the week. And then come Sunday, we talk about, teach about what was read throughout the week. And so we're going through scripture together as a church family. If you are interested in jumping in, you don't have to sit there and go, oh, I missed it, I can't. No, we've got reading plans out at the um, 
at the info desk that you can go and grab a paper and get jumping in. This next week is going to be week six, and it's a Monday through Friday reading plan, giving you the opportunity to catch up on the weekends. But we'd love for you to jump in and be a part of that as we continue walking through Scripture and uh, seeing what the Lord wants to teach us about himself, teach us about ourselves, teach us about this world um, in light of his Word. We believe that the Word of God is important for helping us know more and more and more about Him and therefore getting closer and closer and knowing Him. So this family tree has grown from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and we saw that Jacob becomes Israel. Today, we're going to zoom in and look at Israel's son, Joseph. Now, this was a challenge because There's a bunch of chapters about Joseph and his story and all sorts of details that tell this story. So what I had to do, and this is a good thing for all of us to do, is to step back at the 30,000 foot view and go, what's the point? What is the point of this narrative, Joseph's story, within the context of Genesis and then therefore also within the context of all of Scripture? And I think there are a few things that, that God wants us to see today. See, at the beginning of Joseph's story, he's the youngest of his brothers, and he is the undeniable favorite, Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. And don't we all kind of know, Parenting 101, don't have favorites, right? You're not supposed to do that. And even if you're going to do it, at least be like, don't tell the other kids you're my favorite. Apparently, uh, Jacob was sick that day and didn't catch that lesson because not only does he have a favorite in Joseph, but he gives him this beautiful, colorful coat that he's going to wear around all of his brothers and all of his brothers are going to see the favoritism. They're going to be jealous, be embittered, and hate him for it. Not only that, but Joseph also one day goes out and sees his brothers who are tending to his father's livestock Apparently, they're not doing a good job because Joseph then goes back to dad and says, hey, they're not doing a good job. So the brothers hate him all the more. As if that wasn't enough, Joseph starts having these dreams given to him by God that the moral of the story of the dreams that he's having is, hey, one day your family, all your brothers, even your parents are going to bow down to you. And although I'm thinking maybe that's something I wouldn't tell my family, Joseph thought I should tell my family that. Well, can you imagine that went over really well? Didn't go over well. The brothers hate him all the more. One day the brothers are out tending to the father's flock far away. Joseph is traveling to go catch up with them and see them and check in with them. And the brothers from the distance see Joseph in his pretty coat coming. And they say, so sick of this little brat. I'm paraphrasing. That's the Stephen Maris translation. Sick of this little brat. We should get rid of him. And they start conspiring together to kill him. Thank God that the compassionate older brother Reuben is like, guys, listen, I hate, I hate him too, but we're not really going to shed blood. We're not, we can't kill him. Seriously. And they're like, okay, fine, Reuben. Let's just throw him in this pit. And then we'll just go away and say he's lost or whatever, as if that wouldn't be leaving him for dead, which is just as bad. And so they do. They they throw him in the pit, and Reuben's like thinking in his mind, I'm going to come back sometime after they're all gone, and I'll get him out of the pit, and I'll restore him to our father, and then maybe dad will like me even a little bit more. And so that's his plan. The problem is Reuben goes away for a little bit, and the brothers see this Ishmael-like caravan 
of, of merchants, and they say, aha, we don't have to kill him. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and then it's going to be win, win, win. One, we don't have to kill him, so no blood on our hands. Two, we get rid of him, so we don't have to deal with him or see him anymore. Three, we get a little profit from it. We can get some pocket change from selling him to the Ishmaelites. Winning. And that's what they do. They sell him to the Ishmaelite caravan. They take him to Egypt. The brothers, I guess, then go, oh, snap, our dad's going to wonder where he is. So they take his pretty coat, tear it, kill a lamb, and spread the lamb's blood over that coat, take it back to the father. Father, we found this coat. Is this Joseph's coat? Come on, bro. Really? You, okay. Yes, Jacob starts weeping, starts crying because it's obviously his son's coat. He's grieving. He believes his son is dead. And then the brothers go on about their lives, and Joseph is on his way to Egyptian slavery, where we pick up now in Genesis chapter 39, starting in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. Verse 2, if you're a highlighter or an underliner, here's a good one for you. The Lord was with Joseph. It's a good one to underline. And he became successful, a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. There was again, verse 3, something you could underline. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of that, or of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house or in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So he's basically saying, Joseph, everything I have, everything that I run, everything I own, my money, my operations, my hired servants, you're in charge of it all. The only thing that I still want to have an opinion about is whether I'm having steak or chicken for dinner. He was apparently very picky about that. Continuing on, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was a good-looking fella. Verse 7, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of my master, or because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Let's just pause for a second and be mindful of the fact that Joseph is in his 20s right here. He's in his 20s, and this text is showing us this wasn't a one-off situation. This was happening over and over, day by day. He kept saying, woman, no. Listen, no, I can't do this. Over and over. And I don't know if any of you are in your 20s or remember your 20s. That wouldn't have been easy. 
hormones. <laughs> Just being real, that would have been challenging. Day after day after day, this woman saying, come, lie with me. He keeps saying, listen, no, my master has made me his equal in his house. He's given me everything except you because you're his wife. And so he's giving some natural consequences there. And then he goes on to more ultimate consequences saying, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her, continuing in verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men in the house was there in the house, that's a lesson right there, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and he had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I had lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So a, a couple things there to note. She's using this term saying, he came into me to laugh at me. Well, the came into me is the implications of intercourse there. The laughing is a mockery thing there. This is enough accusation from Potiphar's wife for Potiphar to hear it and go off with his head. That day and age with Potiphar's role, with Joseph's role, and what happened, Potiphar would have had complete authority and ability to go execute him. But for some reason, he doesn't. And what we're about to see is that he sends him into the palace prison, to Pharaoh's prison, where prisoners of Pharaoh get sent. As soon as his master, verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant th treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the palace where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. Highlight, underline one more time. And showed him steadfast love. And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in, the, in Joseph's charge. Why? Here we go, more underline and highlight, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Immediately, we see the care of God over Joseph in that any other person would have been executed. In that day, in that age, and with those roles, if a slave was accused by the master's wife of what Joseph was being accused of, the, the, the master would have had no problem saying, Get rid of him. But Potiphar, it's possible that he knew the character and integrity of Joseph maybe well enough to go, mm, not so sure if my wife's telling me the truth here. But we also see in the text that his, wife, that his anger was kindled against Joseph. 
So whether or not it was that he was wrestling with Joseph really being capable of this, or was it just that he was so thankful of what Joseph had done to bless and prosper his household, either way, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him abundant love, or what did it say? The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, so as so much that, that he was not executed. In fact, in that prison, we see he's promoted. Just like in Potiphar's house, where he's promoted to be in charge of everything in Potiphar's house, the same way he gets into the prison and God's with him there, and he gets promoted to where he's in charge of the prisoners, and even the, he, everyone and everything that happens in there is subject to what Joseph says. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So there's a few things I want to point out here. A few things I want us to notice and pay attention to. First and foremost, we ought to be tremendously encouraged by the fact that the Lord is with us. Now, Pastor Stephen, I thought you taught us that when we were reading the Old Testament, that we have to be careful to take narrative stories like this and not just go what happened to them equals it will happen to us. And so I thought you taught us principles that, that we shouldn't take the Lord was with Joseph and, and, and cause it to mean copy paste the Lord is with us but what we do do is we look at this principle here that the Lord was with Joseph and we ask ourselves okay is this a biblical truth that is also paralleled to the people of God in the New Testament aka us and guess what overwhelmingly absolutely yes it is if we go to Hebrews chapter 13 we will see where it says for he himself has said I will never leave you nor forsake you it's in Hebrews chapter 13 we could also go to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus talking to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. We could go to John chapter 15 and see where Jesus is talking to his disciples again and he tells them, abide in me and I will abide in you. I will be with you. We could go to the book of Acts and see where all the people of God were filled and indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God. We could see where Paul writes to the Corinthians and tells them, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God comes to live in you and indwell you? So not only can we see the principle true of Joseph that the Lord was with him and say also that the Lord was with us, but even one up in that, not only is the Lord with us, the Lord is in us. And so it ought to be tremendously encouraging to us to know in our seasons of suffering and whatever trials and tests that we might be going through, whatever God has sovereignly orchestrated that we are to walk through like he's leading Joseph through this path, we ought to be able to be comforted and, and reassured and rest and trust the Lord is with me. Because I guarantee you something, Joseph had plenty of opportunity to think that he had been betrayed by God or forsaken or forgotten. If your siblings sold you into slavery and you ended up being in slavery and in prison for 13 years, if you had been framed for rape, you probably would be wrestling with a little bit of, God, what's going on? Have you forgotten about me? But notice something. Joseph didn't let what happened to him change the way that he handled what was given to him. As he was in Potiphar's house, wrongly sold into slavery, 
He was still faithful with what was given to him despite what happened to him. As he goes into the prison, framed for rape. Think about that reputation. Thrown in prison, framed for rape. He's still faithful with what's given to him despite what had happened to him. I mean, how many people would have been in Potiphar's house having that woman say, come and lie with me, come and lie with me, and maybe go, you know what? God just obviously doesn't care about me. Why not? But he didn't. And why didn't he? Because of two things. He considered the natural consequences. In the moment of temptation, we must count the cost. He told Potiphar's wife, he said, listen, I can't do this. Your, your husband has made me over his whole house everything I can manage and have except you. So he casts out to her the natural consequences of the decisions that she was proposing. She says, listen, there's a cost to what you're asking me to do. I can't do that. But then Joseph doesn't stop there. As a man of God, he turns to the ultimate. He doesn't say only is there natural consequences. He said to her, how can I do? How, can, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, Joseph wasn't only mindful that there were natural consequences to decisions. He was also aware that all of our lives are an open book before the Lord. Hebrews tells us that all things are naked before his eyes, that there's nothing hidden from him, that he sees all, he knows all, even down to the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts and minds, which ought to make all of us shudder. Because even though we might be really good at, at, at behaving certain ways, every single one of us has moments of sinful thoughts and motives in our hearts and minds. And Hebrews tells us that's naked before him. God knows those thoughts, knows those intentions, knows those motives, which ought to cause us to be a people of perpetual repentance. Saying, Lord, forgive me. Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look and lust in your heart, you have committed the very act of adultery with that woman in your heart. And so for the people who are sitting here like the Pharisee going, I'm pretty awesome. I'm a really good person. I don't do things like that person does. Well, what if we could broadcast your thoughts from your, your head? What if, what if it was just out there, that movie, what a, what a Girl Wants or whatever, what a man, you know, what a woman wants. I can't remember that, a good old Mel Gibson movie, whatever. What if your thoughts could be heard? Yikes. We'd have a lot less friends, wouldn't we? <laughs> What'd you say? In the moment of temptation, we must count the cost. The Lord was with Joseph. God blessed Joseph and led him. Another thing that we can take away from this passage, from this narrative, is that when God sends us through seasons of suffering, he does not send us alone. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. God does not send us through these seasons of suffering alone. He does ordain seasons like this in our life for different reasons, different purposes. Maybe we'll see them in some point. Maybe we'll understand why at some point. Maybe we won't. But the reassurance, the comfort that I take is that the Lord is with us in those seasons. I'm reminded of Psalm 23 where the psalmist said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
This beautiful passage, Psalm 23, talking about the Lord, our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I love translations that say, I will want for nothing. I have need of nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. He gives me everything I need, essentially. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, to give glory to him. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You've prepared a a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My goodness, if you are ever discouraged, if you are ever feeling forlorn or forsaken, just spend some time swimming in the pools of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. What a good shepherd. I'm a pastor, a shepherd in this congregation, and I am a flawed shepherd, and we have in Jesus Christ a perfect shepherd. We shall not want. The Lord is with with us. In the midst of the wrongs done to us, the Lord is with us. In the midst of our suffering, the Lord is with us. In the midst of temptation, the Lord is with us. In the midst of our loneliness and sorrow, The Lord is with us. For time's sake, I'm going to have to do some more paraphrasing of some of the story that happens. Joseph is in prison. He's elevated in charge. Two guys get thrown in prison by Pharaoh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. And they're thrown in prison, prison because for some reason they offended Pharaoh. We don't know how. And so they get thrown in prison and Joseph's there. And these guys start having these crazy dreams. They don't know what to do with them. They feel like they're divine, but they can't interpret them. And Joseph says, hey, guys, don't you know interpretation belongs to the Lord? Tell me your dreams. They tell their dreams to Joseph. And Joseph says, oh, okay, cupbearer. Well, essentially, in three days, you're going to go before Pharaoh, and he's going to restore you to your position, and you're going to serve Pharaoh again. That's what your dream means. The baker's going, oh, nice. Well, let me try this out. Yeah. Hey, I had a dream too. And Joseph says, yeah, actually, you're also going to go before Pharaoh in three days, and he's going to behead you and hang you in a tree, and the birds are going to eat your flesh. Sorry. (laughs) And he gets mad at Joseph. I wonder why. And Joseph's like, this again, okay. And so, of course, three days later, what Joseph said the dreams were going to mean, they came to pass. And on their way out, Joseph's saying, don't forget me, cupbearer, because baker, you won't. Yeah, cupbearer, don't forget me. And what happens? Those things come to pass that Joseph said would come to pass according to interpreting their dreams. And the cupbearer forgets Joseph. And he gets caught up in his new role and his excitement or whatever, I guess, a couple years go by. And of course, we know the story. Pharaoh starts having dreams. And that's where we're going to pick up today now in Genesis chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. They must have been Wisconsin Holsteins. (laughs) And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, I don't know where they would be from, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke and he fell asleep. And dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. 
And the thin ear swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent out and called for the magicians of Egypt, all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Back in those days, in the ancient days, they actually had books, manuals for interpreting dreams, these ancient manuals that they would say, this equals this, and if you have this in a dream, then it must mean this. Lo and behold, the wisdom of man could not interpret God's dreams. I'm going to jump ahead now. Uh, summarizing verse 9, the cupbearer in light of this goes, oh, oh, snap. There was this guy one time <laughs> in prison, and we had these dreams, me and the, bre- the baker. You remember that guy? Yeah. Um, we had dreams, and this guy in the prison told us what would happen, and it came to pass, and Pharaoh's like, send for him. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one that can interpret it for me. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Notice what Joseph does. This is an opportunity where he goes, yeah, yeah, I mean, I did it. I'd probably do it for you too. He says, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Verse 17, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile, seven cows, and, and I'm going to skip ahead for time's sake. He recounts the dream to him. Let's go ahead to verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Interesting wording there. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty and throughout all the land... Um, throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow for it will be severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine." Pharaoh hears all this and he's like, well, it's you, bro. You're, you're number two now. And this man who was in 13 years of slavery and imprisonment now is promoted to be the second most powerful man in the known world. This is the Egyptian empire, pre-Roman empire, the biggest, baddest kingdom empire in the world. Pharaoh being the biggest, baddest, most known power in the world. And Pharaoh makes Joseph number two and says, hey, here's my clothes, here's my garbs, here's my ring, my signet. You stamp something, it means Pharaoh's behind it. So that there is only one man in all the land who doesn't answer to Joseph and his name's Pharaoh. And so Joseph does all the things that he just said. We've got to divvy up this much. We've got to store it up so that in seven years of famine, we'll be ready. 
And at, what do you know? It all happens according to plan. Seven years of plenty, they store it all up. Seven years of famine, the famine hits and it is severe. Which brings us back to up in the land of Canaan, this family, Joseph's family. The famine hit them too. And they're about to starve to death. And Jacob says, boys, go down to Egypt. I heard they have storehouses there. Go down there and see if you can buy some food. They go down, they get there. Joseph sees his brothers approaching. Drama time. And he begins playing this several chapters long game of cat and mouse, selling them some, some, uh, some grain, but also saying to them, well, first he's like, you guys are spies. And they're like, we're not spies. And he's like, you're spies. And they're like, we're not spies. And he's like, you're spies. And they're like, we're not spies. And he's like, well, you said that there's another brother. Why don't you stay here and all the rest of you go back and get your brother. I'll send you with grain, but I don't believe you. And if you don't come back with that brother, you're spies. And they come back and there's chapters of this cat and mouse game where Joseph is doing this stuff. They don't know who is Joseph yet. And they come back and then it gets to this point now where Joseph is about to do the big reveal. Let's turn to chapter 45. Chapter 45, verses 1 through 9. After playing all this cat and mouse game with them, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He took off his garb and revealed himself. And he wept aloud so that all the Egyptians heard it and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Definition of dismayed, thoroughly disheartened as by sudden danger or trouble. <laughs> They're going, oh, snap. Our little brother who we thought was long gone that we sold into slavery is now the second most powerful man in all the land. And we're in trouble. Let's keep on reading. So verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Saying you sold me into Egypt, but don't be discouraged or angered at yourselves because God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. Or I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. Verse six. For the famine has been in the, these land two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you. Listen, he's talking to guys who would remember going, ha, ha, ha. And to them he's saying, God sent me before you. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler all over all the land. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. So he reconciles his brothers. He brings all the family, Jacob, the entire extended family, to Egypt, sets them up and takes care of them, provides for them. 
Notice Joseph uses the power that's given him to forgive those who had sinned against him. Sounds like somebody else I've heard of before. Use the power he had to forgive those who had sinned against them and then provide for them and give them everything that they needed. That's typology of Jesus Christ. We won't spend enough time there, but he brings his family in. They reconcile. They're taking care of him. You fast forward a few chapters to Genesis chapter 50. Now dad dies. Jacob dies. And the brothers once more go, have you guys thought about the fact that maybe Joseph's been nice to us because our dad's still around? He ain't around anymore. We're in trouble. Let's flip to Genesis chapter 50. They start putting this scheme together. Let's go tell him and ask him to be merciful to us. I don't, I'm just going to jump straight to, as I'm out of time, but I want to go to jump, jump to verse, uh, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He's saying, am I the judge? Am I in the place of God? Here we go. Here's your highlighter. Here's your pen. Here's your circler. Here's your sticker. Here we go. As for you, you meant it for evil against me. What's this next phrase? But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Whew, here comes a can of worms that's challenging for us. If we're going to look at what the word of God is saying, it's saying that God is sovereign over the evils done to us, to the wrongs done to us. This is not only an Old Testament situation. If you go to Acts chapter 4, you'll see the apostles praying that God would give them courage to keep sharing the gospel even though they're being told, stop talking about Jesus. And one of the things in their prayer that they said was talking to God that you, they delivered Jesus over to Herod, to Pilate, to the Gentiles and the Jews that everything that your hand had planned would come to pass. Now let's stop for a second. Was, the sin, was it sin for his brothers to sell him in slavery? Yes, it was. Was it sin for Jesus to be crucified? Yes, that's murder. That's sin. Not only is it murder, it's murder of an, un, of a, an perfect, flawless, uncondemnable person. That God planned those things. Scripture also tells us that if Satan knew what was happening, he would not have crucified the son of glory. We can go to Job, the, the story of Job that we read a few weeks ago, where Satan goes to God's courts and God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in the land. He's righteous. He's faithful. And Satan says, well, of course, he's faithful. You've placed a hedge of protection around him. You won't let me touch him. Will a man serve God for nothing? Of course he serves you. Of course he worships you. But if you let me touch his stuff, he'll curse you. And God says to Satan, go ahead. And of course, we know that he doesn't curse God. He stays faithful. Satan comes back to God and says, well, yeah, but if you let me touch his body, he'll curse you. God says, don't take his life, but go ahead. God permitted, God ordained. Testing of, of Job. 
It's not a fun, comfortable conversation. This isn't the palatable stuff. But what we can see and be encouraged by is that in the seasons of suffering that we might be in, there might be things that others meant for evil, that even Satan and demons meant for evil, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love God and call according to his purposes. That's the promise of Romans 8, 28. That is the capsule of Joseph's story. That God is working all things together for the good, even things that might look bad and evil to us. He's working them for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Joseph is saying, brothers, listen, you, send him, you sold me into slavery in Egypt, but God meant it. That, that word was not God changed it or God tweaked it. God meant it for good, for the saving of many. And so that ought to be a comfort to our soul in the midst of our own suffering, in the midst of our own challenges, that one, God is with us, and two, God is over us. God is with us and God is over us. And if there is something in our life that is either permitted or ordained by God, then there is because, it is because there is a greater good that he sees that we might not. Joseph didn't understand and could not properly interpret the sins that were done to him until he goes, ha ha, whoa, actually guys, you don't need to worry. You might have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good because look what God had in the works the whole time. Joseph continues to take the story that's about him and turn it back to being a story about God. He says, God is the one who has interpretation. God will give Pharaoh a faithful interpretation or a good dream or a good answer to the dream. He's saying, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We can see the hand of God over all these things. And so for us, man, to me, what a great comfort is the sovereignty of God. That, that in my life, when I'm struggling with things, when I'm going through things, when I'm suffering, when someone has hurt me or wronged me, I can know that the good and faithful shepherd is over all things. And that hopefully God can grace me to be faithful in the midst of it the same way Joseph was faithful. And that even we can one-up Joseph and go to the man Jesus Christ who was wronged more than anyone, who suffered more and terribly than anyone bearing the sin of mankind on his body on the cross, wrongfully accused, wrongfully murdered, brutally murdered, as spectacle in front of all of mankind who then says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Who knows what he's about to go through Joseph didn't even know what he was about to go through. Jesus knows what he's about to go through on the cross. And he says, gosh, Father, if there's any other way that we can do this, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God is with us and God is over us. And to the believer, that ought to be an anchor of comfort. And I don't know what your situation is. Maybe everything's great for you right now. And I hope that when that's the case, you recognize your need for God just as much as when things are not great. But when things are not great or when you've been wronged or hurt or sinned against or when you are sick or injured or going through whatever you might be going through, could the word of God remind us that God is with us? Not only is he with us, he's in us. This is why Paul in Philippians could be in jail and say, you know what, guys? It's all right. This actually worked out for the good. Now I've told the whole palace guard about Jesus. So 
It's cool that I'm here. And he says, all these things that once were so valuable to me, all these things I once thought were so important, I now count as rubbish next to knowing Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, counting it as garbage, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings. When you know Jesus and you recognize that the Lord is with you, with whatever you might be facing or challenged with or going through, there's the anchor for the soul that it could not be happening in your life were not God permitting it or ordaining it for a greater and more ultimate good that you might not be able to see yet. And you might not even see in this lifetime. But we will see as we have exceedingly precious promises that we know there is a day coming with no sickness, no pain, no sorrow, no grief, no tears, no mourning. Only utter elation in the presence of God. There is no paradigm in this world for us fathoming what we will yet see. And Paul said in Romans chapter 8, he said, I cannot compare the sufferings of this world with the glory that is to come. He called it light and momentary suffering. When we're sick, when we're going through stuff, should we pray? Absolutely. Should we petition the Lord and say, God, heal me? Yes, absolutely. We should pray and ask for healing. We should ask God to provide for us. We should ask God to meet our needs. We should ask God to, to do all the good that can come up in our mind. Yet when it doesn't pan out the way that we think it should, can we trust God and be faithful that he is with us and he is over us? God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I'm thankful that your word is very clear that that you are over things. And sometimes that's a hard thing to swallow. We don't like it because we want control. I want control. But God, I'm thankful that, that the God who is infinitely wise, infinitely loving, who, who knows my innermost being, knows all of us more than we know ourselves, who knows what is best for all of us, is the one who is in charge of the universe. God, I pray today that the comfort of your word, that you are with us, that you are in us, that you are over us, would comfort us the same way that Joseph comforted his brothers with these truths. There may be things in our lives that people meant for evil or even Satan meant for evil, demonic forces trying to attack or oppress us meant for evil. But God, you have an infinitely wise plan. And I ask that you would help us to, like Joseph, keep our eyes on you, mindful that we're an open book before you that will stand before you someday. God, I ask today if there's anybody who doesn't know you right now, your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see the truth, believe the truth that Jesus, you are the Savior of the world. That you paid for our sin on the cross. That was meant for e- what was meant for evil there and trying to kill the Son of God was purposed for the good by God to bring many into salvation. God, I ask that there would be more today that would find themselves in that many that there would be people in this congregation today, in this building today, and even online who would come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ, come to genuine repentance, turning away from sin, and be filled and transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. God, I ask that you would be the ever-present help in the time of need, that your rod and your staff would comfort us in the valley of the shadow of death. Your presence in us and with us would be everything that we need as an anchor for our soul 
that we could continue to live faithful for your glory, for your purposes. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen, amen.